the Buddha codified his understanding of reality in what is known as the Four Noble Truths. First Noble Truth is the truth of dukkha, that there is suffering in life. Second Noble Truth is that that suffering is caused by craving or holding on. Third Noble Truth is that the cessation of that suffering is possible. And the Fourth Noble Truth is the path to be developed to reach the end of that suffering or the cessation of suffering. In the Fourth Noble Truth, the Buddha defined a path of eight factors which can be divided into three trainings. And it is these three trainings which actually Joseph was speaking about last night. And when he, when the Buddha talked about the nature of suffering, he could see that there were different gradients of suffering. When we act out our tormented states of mind, greed, anger, and delusion, in our ordinary reality, we cause a lot of suffering to ourselves and others. But by paying careful attention to our intentions, where we're coming from, we can arouse a compassionate mind to speak and act in a way that does not cause ourselves or others harm. And much of what Joseph spoke about last night is just this, to avoid the harmful activities of killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, to refrain from the four types of speech that cause harm. But then in the th three mental actions to be avoided in order to be happy, they get a little more difficult because they're to refrain from covetousness, ill will, and wrong views. And the Buddha understood that just watching your intentions and how you speak and act doesn't really get a handle on covetousness and wrong view, ill will. So a stronger practice was needed, and this is the practice of samadhi, or calming the mind. It's what we do when we pay attention to the present moment, whether you're doing metta, loving-kindness, as many of you did for a week, or whether we're developing the mindfulness of changing objects in vipassana. It is that momentary mindfulness that temporarily or momentarily puts aside covetousness and ill will. And the other visitors to the mind known as defilements that cause us to suffer. When we're able to calm the mind through momentary or a continuing series of moments of mindfulness, then we feel calm, we feel tranquil. We're not obsessed with the uh, tormenting mind states of wanting and not wanting and judging and picking and choosing. Nevertheless, conditions can change. They do change. And we cannot be sure that we will not again fall into obsessive states of mind or acting out those obsessive states of mind in a way that causes ourselves and others harm. So the Buddha prescribed a third training, which is the mindfulness of momentary phenomena in order to understand, really, suffering and the causes of suffering, to really change our wrong understandings of reality so that we never again fall into greed, hatred, and delusion. Well, this is a subtle practice. It's a subtle transformation of the mind, and it addresses the most subtle wrong views, the tenth unwholesome action that Joseph was speaking about last night. Wrong views aren't overcome just by being a good human being and being nice and compassionate. Wrong views can still proliferate in the mind 
even if we have a calm mind and loving kind, full of loving kindness, we can still have deeply held misunderstandings of the nature of reality. And it's through this third practice, developing wisdom, that we begin to correct, purify those wrong views. At the conventional level of reality, this consensual reality that we all live in 24-7, and that we practice in on retreats like this, we understand that the defilements that come to the mind cause us to suffer. We get angry and irritated, jealous and envious and fearful and and it takes quite a lot of paying attention to realize that those states of mind are just visitors. They, they don't really live here. But it takes quite a lot of mindfulness just to see that they can be put aside temporarily. When we're able to practice mindfulness, as we do here, and temporarily put them as, put the visitors visitors to the mind aside for an enduring period of time, and we can feel somewhat calm, somewhat peaceful in the body, peaceful in the mind, it's as if we give those visitors a restraining order to stay away. Nevertheless, they can still persist, and it isn't until we actually see at the pixelated level of reality. When we see reality as just pixels of phenomena, physical, mental, pleasant or unpleasant stuff, passing through the knowing mind, that we're able to deeply understand that these visitors to the mind are just fleeting, insubstantial, impersonal pixels. They're not really who we are. They're not embedded in our mind. They're not anything that we have to get rid of. But this understanding of what causes us to suffer is very subtle. And it takes a very refined practice to discover these understandings. The practice that reveals these understandings is Vipassana. It is mindfulness of changing objects and deeply understanding how they arise or that they arise, how they arise, how they pass away, where we begin to look at the roots of our suffering and the cause of our suffering. As we have pointed out, we practice mindfulness by aiming our attention, connecting with the object, the breath, or other predominant objects, sustaining our attention in order to know it. And when we know it clearly, we feel the breath, or we feel the step, or we feel the sensation in the body. At the most intimate, momentary, fleeting, pixel of reality. When we can see with our mindfulness that level of each moment, not the consensual reality that we live in, but the pixelated piece, the momentary flickering, fleeting, insignificant little, then we can see that this moment itself, no matter what it is, arises and passes away. And that is important, that's significant, because it's the doorway into deeply understanding just how impermanent and fleeting and insubstantial and therefore unsatisfying each moment really is.
when we understand the truth of impermanence and the condition of how impersonal it all is, and that that which is fleeting and impersonal just cannot provide a basis for stability and therefore satisfaction in life. When we understand impermanence, dukkha and anatta, or nietzsche, dukkha and anatta, we can reframe our whole way of life, our whole life, our whole understanding of what it is we're doing here, what it is we hope to do, what it is we can or cannot do, and really understand the causes of our suffering and the causes of our happiness. So it's important in a very deep and profoundly transformative way to understand what Vipassana is and to gain the knowledge of Vipassana, the insight into Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. So I want to speak about these three insights tonight briefly so that you can begin to distinguish Vipassana practice from metta or any other practice, and really see the importance and the value of deep and therefore liberating insight. Anicca, or impermanence, means things change. Things are here, then they're gone. And we know that from some intellectual, at some intellectual level, whether we've heard the teachings of the Buddha or not, we know that things change. People grow up, they get old, they die. We ourselves have changed a lot since the time of our birth. Even today, we've changed a lot. Thoughts change, bodies change, external things change. But knowing change at that level is not really Vipassana insight. It's applying Vipassana insight to our consensual reality but it's not deeply liberating. We can know that things change and we still suffer because we're hanging on. And so somehow that knowledge hasn't really gotten inside to unhook the tendency to hang on to what we only believe is impermanent. It is said that impermanence is hidden by the massive continuity of phenomena. When we don't look precisely, intimately, momentarily at experience, it looks very continuous. And in that superficial appearance, we believe that things are permanent, that things last. When Kamala and I, on the rare occasions, go to a luau on Maui, they usually have a performance, a hula, hula show, and dancers. And, and as the sun goes down and the, the darkness comes up and they light the torches, one of the last performances is usually the male hula dancers with the flaming torches that they twirl and spin, and they light one end or two ends, and they're tossing them in the air, and they're, they're doing all their things with these flaming torches. And when you look at it, when you watch them, and they're twirling this stick with a flame on either one or both ends, it looks like a circle of fire. And you can't see it as anything but a circle of fire. You see it a circle of light, which you know to be fire. But there's really no circle of fire there. It's just moments of light twirling very fast in a circle that to our eyes and the construction of the mind appears to be a circle. Well, if we could be mindful enough and quick enough in our perceptions, we would see It's not really a circle. It's just moments or pixels of light in a circle that we misperceive. 
Well, I use that as an example because, or as a reference, because everything we see in life is like that. When I stood in front of the mirror today to comb my hair, I thought I was the same person that stood in front of the mirror yesterday and combed his hair. Didn't you? <laughs> of course. I mean, and on a superficial level and on an ordinary reality level, it's true. But really, there was nothing the same about that. If we could have looked closely enough, just at whether it's the, you know, a bad hair night or a good hair day or whatever, I mean, it's different. But there's an assumption in the mind that it's been continuous, and so there's this belief that this, is, this being is continuous. But if we really look scientifically at what's going on, there's nothing continuous in the body. Neither is there anything continuous in the mind. You remember that sitting earlier today where you were struggling with, what, your judging mind or an ache in the back or your wandering mind or maybe you were just kind of hanging out in bliss? Where is it now? It's gone. It's not somewhere in your mind and you're going to go back and taste it again. It's gone completely. When we see that clearly, deeply, momentarily, what is there to hang on to? Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. At the pixelated level of reality, as we are training our mind to see, what we discover about this mind-body phenomena called Steve, in my case, and you in your case, is that this experience is just a fleeting, a rapidly fleeting stream of physical and mental stuff that if we don't look closely and glue it all together, looks like me. But if we really slow the process down, or rather, I should say, if we speed the mindfulness process up, we can see each of these moments go by. And in each one of these moments that is so fleeting, the mind really cannot find anything to hang on to. How can the mind hang on to something that is not here for more than a split second, really? Well, when the mind sees at that level, it just settles back and lets it all go by at this very deep, insightful level. When you open your eyes and you stand up and you're back in ordinary reality, so to speak, you still have to relate to each other and yourself and your body and the, the person in the mirror. But your understanding of how impermanent and how fleeting and how insubstantial it all is kind of conditions or reconditions or deconditions how you think about yourself, how you think about others, how you think about the past, how you think about the future. When you deeply understand and you see over and over and over again how fleeting it all is, it really becomes impossible to imagine a stable future. And so you don't make the effort. You don't struggle to kind of hold it together to keep it from falling apart because you have seen deeply. It's not possible. And contrary to thinking, as you might be thinking, oh my God, it's constantly falling apart, I can't hold it together. Yowch, ouch, oh. The only way you can see that is when you develop a very balanced mind. As Kamala and Sharon both were speaking about, the balanced mind or the equanimous mind is the mind that rests before it falls into reactivity. And from that resting place, we can then see this level of reality, this understand, see deeply and understand reality in this way. So that when you see how impermanent and fleeting things are, from this place of a balanced mind, 
this non-reactive balanced mind, you don't freak out. You don't get upset. You don't get overwhelmed. You don't get, you know, as the scientist who finally realized that atoms are just swirling emptiness, so he decided to wear snowshoes around campus just so he wouldn't fall through. (laughs) We don't need to do that because we really understand that from this place of non-reactivity, this is the way things are. And it's okay. And we can live our life at this ordinary level of reality quite well with the understanding that everything is rapidly and continually changing. The insight into impermanence is, it's difficult to really deeply see. It is challenging at a superficial level at times, but at the mature level of understanding impermanence, it's a great relief. You don't have to hold on. You don't have to hold it together. You're anything about you, your mind, or anybody else. Because there comes with this understanding and this deep insight, the confidence and the creativity to live with those conditions. It's an when the mind is aligned with the truth, it has a tremendous amount of energy. It can find ways to be with changing conditions without struggling or fear or anxiety or controlling. It's very free to respond rather than react. Years ago, as my then primary relationship was dissolving around me, and it was all coming to a messy, unpleasant end, I was not yet ready to acknowledge the truth. And so I kept saying to my partner, I said, you remember the way things used to be? That's the way they still are. And they weren't. But I, I wanted to believe that. You know, the, I, looking at it at a superficial level, it was true. But at just below the surface, or the relationship had gone on, it had passed on, and everything that was the source of our stability and happiness was over. It, was, it had ended. And as difficult as that is to acknowledge and recognize, when we do accept it, acknowledge it, this is, this is the way it is, then we can grieve the loss of whatever has gone by and get on with life. It's important to, to consciously know that we're letting go of whatever has passed so that we can feel the loss and not get entangled in it and be present for the present and the future when it comes. Insight allows us to do that. So the first characteristic or the first understanding that we gain through insight or through the pasana practice is the understanding of impermanence. The second is the understanding of dukkha. Ordinarily, in our lives, in this consensual reality, we like to experience pleasure and we don't like to experience pain. And so we we do what we can. We, We so much of our life, most of our life is about pursuing, seeking, getting, consuming, becoming, having pleasure and avoiding as much as possible pain. There's an assumption there, or a hidden or mistaken belief, that if we can just experience pleasure 24-7, or try to, then we'll be happy. Well, we have been doing that for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, some of us longer than that, years. We've been doing that. We've been pursuing 
as much as we can and avoiding as much as we can. And no doubt, we have enjoyed the pleasure. That's great. We've endured the pain. That's necessary. But are we yet so happy and so content and so at ease with ourselves that we can just rest in peace with the way things are for the rest of our lives? Most of us cannot. And so we're still looking for happiness in something that, or in many things that, cannot offer it. Dukkha is hard to see. And the Buddha said, the truth of dukkha is very difficult to see. We live with it constantly, but it's hard to open to. We minimize, we personalize, we avoid, we deny that there's pain in life. Now, why is it hard to see? Well, partly because to experience pain, physical, mental pain, it's not fun, it's not pleasant. And in our culture, as in many cultures, it's, it's kind of a sign or a mark of, you know, kind of being, you know, either, you know, deficient or sick or not able to handle it or whatever. Just can't kind of get it together to experience pleasure all the time. Well, all of us experience pain, physical pain, the obvious physical pain of aches and pains, even without sitting on a retreat. Just growing up is painful. We experience the mental pain of loneliness, fear, anxiety, insecurity, depression, despair. At different times, all of us have experienced almost all of these. But when we do, you know, there's kind of a, you know, well, it's just temporary. This isn't the way it really is. Usually I'm healthy, and usually I'm not in pain, and usually I'm not this emotionally distressed, and, and it's just, this is an aberration. This is not an aberration. This is the way it is. But dukkha has another element or another meaning, another experience. And it's rooted in the, the fact that things change. And because things change, we are forever insecure. Whatever it is that we have put together in our life, our finances, our relationship, our career, our whatever else you've got, that is the basis of your feeling secure and stable and happy and kind of okay with your life, all of it is subject to immediate change. Any one of us could go home to no home or, or can go to a doctor's and get a diagnosis that changes our life. Or, you know, if the stock market does things that it does sometimes, the security that we felt is gone. And when conditions change, the conditions that we rely on to be happy, when they change, our happiness goes. And so whatever we are relying on, because it is subject to change, really can't provide the stable security that we'd like to have in order to be happy, or that we need, actually, to be happy. And so for all of us, just on the periphery of our vision is this insecurity. And again, we, we often miss it, we often deny it, we often don't see it or don't live with that reality because, you know, sometimes we think, well, I'm working to get it together. I'll get it together here in another year, or another career, another job, another relationship, another. Or we think, well, it's just it's just my particular thing. You know, we personalize it and we think, well, everybody else has got it together and they're secure and happy and safe and they really got it together. 
and it's just me who doesn't. That's not true. There isn't any one of us in the room that doesn't live with the insecurity of relying on things that change. That's not it. That's not all. There's more. Dukkha, as if that wasn't enough. Dukkha also means, well, it's what's called Sankara Dukkha. There's two views of Sankara Dukkha. There's the macro view and the micro view. The macro view is we're born, our parents or other caregivers doing the best they can, take care of us. They feed us, they bathe us, they educate us, they coo us, they love us, they burp us, they put us to bed, they get us up, they do everything they can to keep us happy. And after a few years, they say, you're on your own. And then you have to do it, or I have to do it. We have to do it. We have to feed ourselves and bathe ourselves and take care of ourselves and groom ourselves and entertain ourselves because, you know, if you don't take, if you don't clean yourself and you don't brush your teeth and comb your hair and take a bath for a couple of weeks, dukkha. <laughs> and so you have to do that. And you have to do it for the body. You have to do it for the mind because, you know, if you didn't take care of your mind and distract your mind and entertain your mind and fill your mind, it'd be like being on a retreat your whole life. <laughs> I mean, dukkha, okay? And you've got to do this. And you've got to do it for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, or 80 years. And then what? Where's it all going? All that care and concern and attention and educating and cooing and bathing and... Well, to be polite, it's going into a box in the hole in the ground. That's it. That's where it's going. That's where the body's going. Isn't that a little bit kind of oppressive? <laughs> I mean, that's the macro view. The micro view isn't much better. We have these six senses, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, and our mind. And they're constantly being stimulated. You know, there's just, you know, there's noise happening. There's, there's the, you can always feel something in the body and there's sounds happening. And if you've got your eyes open to see, and if you don't have your eyes open, you're imagining things that you've seen or want to see. And your thoughts are just kind of going, going, going. It's like we are constantly being bombarded by these six things that are just a, kind of filling us up. Constantly, 24 Even when you go to sleep, try to get away from it all, you've got to dream. <laughs> Where are we going to get any relief? Isn't that oppressive? <laughs> it is, isn't it? You know, if we could really acknowledge it, we say, you know what, this is, this is a burden. This is, this is kind of oppressive. But, of course, if we acknowledge it, what are we going to do about it? Because what can we do about it? You know, we've got this experience, it's kind of dukkha, it's kind of dukkha, it's very dukkha. Okay, it's very, very dukkha. It is said that dukkha is hidden because we continually shift our body posture. As long as you keep moving, you don't notice it so much. Which is important to understand why it is we say, when you come to sit, sit still. Even if you sit in the most ergonomically designed chair, we brought it in, you know, one of those things that just plush. You just lay out, not even quite sitting up, not laying down, but just, just right, just got the right padding in the right places, in the right posture. If you laid, if you laid sat, lounged, reclined in that chair, and still, and paid attention, oh, within 20 minutes you'd be uncomfortable. Because we continually shift around, move, keep moving, we don't see it. But when we can steady our posture, steady our attention, and really look, it's said that the first noble truth of dukkha has to be investigated. Because it, I mean, it's so obvious, but we avoid it, we deny it, we minimize it, we try to get away from it. But when we see it, when we steady our attention and we look, we see, ouch, this is painful or it's, it's oppressive, or I feel insecure, or I feel unstable, or it's, you know, we feel like that. Well, it's all kind of unsatisfactory, isn't it? And that's what dukkha means. 
It's the unsatisfying or the unsatisfactoriness of experience. When it's painful, that's unsatisfactory. When we feel insecure, that's unsatisfactory. When something's oppressive, that's unsatisfactory. Why is it important to see that deeply on a moment-to-moment basis so that we really understand what we experience physically and mentally, even if it's pleasant, because it changes, we know what's coming after that. It's important to see, because when we understand that things change, things have this dukkha characteristic, we won't rely on them for our happiness. Instead, the understanding that things are painful, things change, things are oppressive, that understanding allows us to not demand of experience that it provides security or constant pleasure or a sense of fulfillment. It can't. But it's the understanding of that and living from that understanding that allows us to be free of dukkha, to not expect it to be otherwise. Last fall, yeah, last fall, uh, we, we're, we're building a small sanctuary and hermitage on Maui, and we've had a, an ongoing negotiation with the water department on Maui to, uh, we need to, we and our neighbors need to improve the water system to our area so that we can get large meters and larger meters and therefore get the permits to build the buildings we want to build. And so it's been a a multi-year, seven or eight years, we've been working with the water department and negotiating with them and getting the engineered plans and designs. And as as the years go by, the cost goes up. So last year, we just, we finally got the engineering, we finally got the contractor's bid, and it was about you know, $500,000 more than we wanted to pay, or was thought we were really able to pay. So I drew up a list of the various ways that I thought the water department could give us some relief, you know, change the design a little bit, only require one chain link fence instead of two, uh, you know, just little things, you know, but cumulatively would have added up to substantial savings. Not that it would have changed the system dramatically, but so I called the water department, and I talked to the deputy director, and I asked for a meeting to go over my requests. So I went to the meeting and fully prepared with little handouts for him of the points I was going to try to make and request some relief, financial relief. And he had a couple of engineers in the room. So I introduced the concept of financial relief and started through my list. And I went to the first point, how about, could you do this? And he looks at it, he reads it, he talks to the engineers a little bit, and they come back and say, uh, no, section two point something something rather, no, we can't do that because that's the rule. Okay, well, how about the second one? How about giving us a, a rebate early instead of waiting for five years? You know, couldn't you do that? Uh, they commune among themselves and talk, and they say, no, we're not able to do that because that's not the way it's done. Okay, well, in section number three, how about how about getting some relief this way, letting us do it that way instead of the more expensive way? And so they discussed, and they said no. Well, after I'd been through six or seven of these 12 or 15 points, the deputy director, he turned to me, and he's a nice guy. You know, he works, he's a nice guy. He's about my age and got a family, and I've seen him several times. And he turns to me, he says, you're old enough to know. <laughs> and, and you don't need me to tell you. Life's unfair. <laughs> and the unspoken corollary was, deal with it. <laughs> well, you can imagine what the next 10 seconds were like. I was uh, stunned. I was shocked. I was humiliated. I felt indignant. I felt like saying things that I probably and didn't, luckily, say. And it was, it was just, I was just sitting there watching 
the react the mind react in a way that just didn't want to hear that you know for 10 15 i don't know 20 seconds maybe and then something just went and my mind said this is the way it is it can be dealt with this is the way it is life's unfair it can be dealt with If I had been, been unable to feel that dukkha, I'd been angry, I'd stomped out, I'd swore, I'd threatened. And, and but being able to just be present with what is actually going on in that moment, not what you want to go on, because what I wanted to go on wasn't happening. What I had planned, that wasn't happening. What I'd hoped for, that wasn't happening. In fact, it got worse. He added another $50,000 expense. <laughs> okay. This is the way it, life is really unfair. And you know what? It can be dealt with. When we are able to open to, acknowledge, accept that it's really unsatisfying. It's that understanding that allows us to move through life, dealing with these unsatisfying conditions in a way that just doesn't defeat you, that doesn't overwhelm you, that doesn't kind of uh, diminish your vitality and interest and creativity in living in life. It is so important to see the truth of dukkha. It is so important. Not just to know it in your mind, because you can know it in your mind. I mean, I can tell you, you know, there's pain in life, okay? That just doesn't cut it. We know that. But it's, it's when we see it inside, when we are able to live with it on a moment-to-moment basis, as we are beginning and training ourselves to do here in this practice. When we leave here and we're dealing with traffic and work and the other unsatisfying, oppressive, painful conditions in life, it's our understanding and our ability to be with it here that allows us to be with it there at a very deep, freeing level. And it's, it's this insight, this deeply understanding, this is the way things are that frees us from suffering. So we have impermanence, the understanding of impermanence, the understanding of dukkha. The third characteristic that we see, or the third understanding of vipassana, or insight, is the understanding of the anatta characteristic, the impersonality. Ordinarily, It feels like, in ordinary reality, that I am this body and this mind. And when I look out there, I see you as this body and this mind, or that body and that mind. And that seems like who you are. And we need to know, we need to have boundaries. This is me, and that's you. These are my feelings, those are your feelings. Okay. And it's good to have a, a, a clear sense of self, to know who you are, to know your boundaries, to know your limits, to know your own thoughts, your own feelings, your emotions, what works for you, what doesn't work for you, your strengths, your limitations. It's good to know that. We can make wise decisions in life when we have an accurate sense of ourselves. But we suffer when our sense of ourself isn't confirmed by others. Or conditions change and our sense of ourself is no longer supported. Our self, our sense of ourself, is created from what we do, what we think, how we perceive ourselves. That's who we become. And we take 
and aggregate together all of these thoughts, all of these feelings, all of these decisions, all of these intentions, all of these intuitions, all of these beliefs into me. When those thoughts are challenged, when those beliefs are challenged, when that body is threatened, we feel threatened because we get identified with this sense of self. But this sense of self is just, it's like somebody poured glue over all of our experiences, mashed it all together and said, that's you. Because are you really anything other than what you have experienced? Can you imagine yourself as other than what you have experienced? What you've thought, what you believed, what you've done, what you've tasted. That's, that's all we feel ourselves to be. And it's all glued together into this 20-year-old, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old package. And that's who we are. Well, mindfulness is the solvent of that glue. And when we come here and we practice mindfulness, we slowly pour a little solvent on this package of me, and the pixels of experience which have been glued together to make up this me, sense of self, start to get loosened up. The solvent dissolves the glue, and this memory goes floating off, and this thought goes floating off, and this sensation, and this fear, and joy, sorrow, and and in time, the sense of ourself becomes a very porous, pixelated flutter, or just kind of a cacophony of stuff. There's no substance to it. There's no solidity to it. There's nothing that endures to it. It's just stuff glued together. And when the glue dissolves, it all falls apart. Again, when we think, my gosh, it's all going to fall apart. It's all going to come unglued. I'm going to come unglued. Yikes! But remember, that insight into the impersonal nature of this body and this mind, that deep and liberating insight is only possible from a place of a non-reactive mind. When the mind is in balance, resting before it falls into reactivity, it can see the disaggregation of the body and mind, the memories, the futures, the plans, the emotions, the thoughts, the joy, sorrows, fears, anxieties, and everything else that makes up you. And they get disaggregated because the glue gets dissolved. The mind doesn't react. The mind doesn't fall into fear. The mind doesn't fall into sorrow. The mind doesn't fall into anxiety because it's resting in that place before reactivity. And then this clear seeing of the impersonal nature of it all is so liberating. It's so freeing in that you don't have to live up to your expectations of yourself. What self? (laughs) You don't have the habits that are obsessing you or compelling you to repeat obsessively, addictively, compulsively, that which doesn't cause you any good or anybody else, they've been dissolved. It is so freeing to see deeply through practicing mindfulness, developing insight, and seeing the pixelated nature of the mind, the body, in its dissolved state, so to speak. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to disappear. You're suddenly not, you're going to, you know, after a deep insight to, into the anatomic characteristics, you're going to open your eyes and you're not going to be there. It's not going to happen. But the understanding that this is the way it is, is there. And when you get up and you walk out of the room and you move down the, the street and you go to have lunch and, you know, you go to work, the understanding of how impersonal it is for you and for everyone you see, really, it gives you a tremendous sense of spaciousness, 
freedom to, to respond to the conditions of life rather than to react out of deeply conditioned habits. It, this is the benefit of insight. We disentangle our sense of self from the past, from our expectations, from our demands, from our obsessions. We can be free in each moment to respond out of wisdom, compassion, understanding. Years ago, I was trying to catch an early flight to Boston from San Francisco, and I called up the airport, or called up the airlines, and said, look, I need to get an earlier flight than my ticket. Is there any space on this flight, the red eye, going to Boston? They said, oh, yeah, that's two-thirds empty, plenty of room. So I went down to the airport, 10 o'clock at night, and there was a madhouse there. And I said, my gosh, what's happening? And the United officials explained to me that they'd canceled one of their flights to Boston, and everybody that was on that flight was going to be going on the flight that I thought I was going to be going on, and I wouldn't be able to fly standby. I wasn't going to be able to fly standby? Ah, jeez. Well, duka. Well, I said, well, I'll, I'll wait. You know, can you put me on the wait list? Just in case there's an empty seat, I'd like to fly. And by the way, I'm a frequent flyer, and <laughs> I've been with you guys a long time. Got a lot of miles. So they said, well, I'll just go up to the gate and wait. This is when you could go up to the gate and wait. Now you can't go up to the gate and wait. You've got to have your thing. But anyway, there was a madhouse at the gate, and they were trying to get everybody on the plane so that the plane could take off on time, and they were shuffling everybody on. And once they called all the people with tickets, they looked around, and there were three of us that wanted to fly standby. So he said, well, come with us down to the door of the plane. We'll go down the, the rampway. We'll stand at the door. And once everybody's set down, if there's any seats, we'll let you on. And I said, I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to the door. <laughs> set everybody down. They said, oh, there's one seat way up back between those two big guys. You know, they look like football players. And I said, I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> I said, well, why don't you get on? So they put me, they let me on, they put me down there. And I was so happy. I was just like, wow, I'm going to get to Boston when I need to be there. And Okay, this doesn't look like the most comfortable seat, but nevertheless, I, I'll get there. And as I was kind of stuffing my stuff under the seat in front of me, I looked and they found another empty seat and the second person got on. And they were just about to close the door and back away from the gate. And somebody, for some reason, you know, when they do a final destination check, you know, this plane's going to Boston. If you're not intending to go to Boston, <clears throat> now's the time to let us know. Well, some, somebody got up out of first class and said, wait a minute, I don't belong here, I guess. They got off the plane. <laughs> so the, 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 the hostess, or the flight attendant there said, uh, oh, hey, to the last person that was waiting to fly standby, I said, come on, there's another seat you can get on. So on walks this... <clears throat> fellow that looked like he was uh, enjoying life, living on the beach and everything he owned in a little knapsack, his dreadlocks and his flip-flops, and, <laughs> and they, put, they put him in first class. <laughs> so I pushed the button and I said, uh, I, I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> and they said, sit down, shut up, we're leaving, <laughs> or something like that. So I was sitting there fuming. I was just so angry. It's like, why didn't I get put in first class? I'm the frequent flyer. <laughs> so the first 20 minutes of flight, I'm just tortured. I'm just suffering. I've composed this multi-page letter to the United Frequent Flyer Program, why they're treating me so badly. And then I realized I got another six hours. If I arrive in Boston after six hours of fuming, hmm, not good. And in that instant, I just like, oh. I'm on the plane. I'm going to get there. I'm still a frequent flyer. <laughs> <laughs> so what? <laughs> it was okay. You just settle back in, enjoy the flight. What, what happened? Well, as long as I was identified with my sense of myself of being a frequent flyer, and I should get the benefits of a frequent flyer, I was suffering. And when I recognized this suffering and let go of that identification, 
the only thing that happened, I stopped suffering. I didn't disappear. That sense of myself was just, I let it go. I didn't disappear. I didn't lose that status. <laughs> I still, I'm still a freaking flyer. <laughs> what sense of yourself are you identified with? Yogi on retreat? Happy mom? Sad mom? You know, good yogi, bad yogi? <laughs> it doesn't matter what sense of yourself you're hanging on to, it'll cause you suffering. You can let go. If you look at, if you, if you can steady your attention on what's actually happening in this moment and don't add on the story, no matter what the story is, no matter how compelling or how long you've told yourself that story about yourself, it's just a story. You can let it go. If you see clearly, deeply, that all that is arising in each moment is just impersonal pixels of physical and mental stuff. And let it go. It's not even that you've got to let it go. It goes. <laughs> Don't hang on. And when we see this anatta characteristic deeply, you can't hang on because you see it is, well, where is that sense of self? If I could grab it, I'd get rid of it. But you can't grab it. There's nothing there. It's just a, it's just an, it's a belief. That's it. It's a belief. Let go of the belief, stop suffering. Insight into the anatta characteristic is, again, so important because it frees us from suffering. In the moment, and not only in the moment, but as we move through life, Without hanging on to this sense of self that's bumping up against other senses of self, we suffer less. That's the benefit of Vipassana practice. It's hard to see. It takes this steady, close, intimate, moment-to-moment -moment looking to deeply understand from your own experience these three characteristics that all things are impermanent, that they are incapable of providing a satisfactory basis for your happiness, and that they're impersonal. And when you see that, and you live from that understanding, or those understandings, you're free to respond to conditions with no attachments, no baggage, no spin, no agenda, no demands, expectations, but creatively, compassionately, with understanding. That's the goal. That's the direction, I should say, of our Vipassana practice. It's not the end goal, but it's the result. It's available to us. To the extent that we practice and see deeply, that's the gift. When we know the truth, that things are impermanent, they have the dukkha characteristic, they're impersonal, we can live in alignment with those understandings. Not expect and demand life, reality, to be different. That's a struggle. And when we live in alignment with the way things are, the sense of spaciousness and well-being is undeniable. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.